The three-week occupation of downtown Ottawa has somewhat dissipated. What began as a trucker convoy against vaccine mandates was co-opted by some extremists, such as the ones waving the Nazi and Confederate flags. They were dubbed a few bad apples among a peaceful protest, which was anything but peaceful. It also shone a light on a troubling aspect of Canada, that extremism is alive and well here. What will it take to stop it? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. The world got a glimpse inside the power of extremism in the case of the January 6th insurrection in the U.S. Capitol. For the residents of downtown Ottawa, the occupation of their area looked eerily similar. Canadians, at least on the world stage, like to promote our tolerance for everyone. But that's an illusion. Hate grows here too. Our unpublished.vote question asks, do you feel extremism is on the rise in Canada? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll chat with Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. First, I'm pleased to be joined by Barbara Perry, Professor at the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at Ontario Tech University. And Barbara, is Canada a fertile breeding ground for extremism? It has certainly become that in the past, uh, let's say, eight, 10 years, somewhere around there. Uh, we started looking very closely at the far right in about 2012, uh, I would say, published our first report in 2015 and identified about 100 active groups at the time, probably a pretty conservative uh, estimate uh, even then. Uh, but when Trump burst on the scene, that also seemed to be, be uh, you know, an impetus for uh, the growth in the movement, both in the U.S. and in Canada as well. It sort of uh, enabled and emboldened those who would who would share uh, similar sentiments, um, you know, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant. Uh, I mean, you name it, you name the community and he sort of attacked them. Uh, and so it, it did it did spread up here as well. And, you know, we had a number of other factors playing into that. And COVID uh, has, you know, lit yet another, put another log on the fire, if you will. I mean, we started with a lot of uh, anti-Asian and anti-Semitic sentiment, and that has been taken on board very much by the by the far right. And then with the uh, the restrictions and the mandates, that gave them yet another lightning rod uh, on which to uh, rally the troops. You know, uh, some words that, that, that came out during the, the occupation here in Ottawa, we, we, we hear about obviously extremism. We heard a lot about populism as well. Uh, are they the same? Are they similar? Or how would you describe the difference? Yeah, they're related. I mean, they're very closely akin. I think that, you know, when we talk about extremism, I mean, it is what it says on the tin, right? It is the, the extreme, it is the fringe, it is the most... Um, uh, what provocative, uh, I guess, illustration or expression of concerns. Um, populism revolves more around sort of exploitation of popular grievances, uh, a hostility towards uh, the elite, a hostility even towards uh, political correctness as well in the, uh, in the contemporary uh, current. So um, the relationship there then is that the far right is very good at exploiting, much better than the left, uh, very good at 
at exploiting, masterful in fact, at exploiting those sorts of popular grievances and concerns. So in this case, we're seeing, you know, rallying around this notion of a tyrannical state or a state that's overreached its uh, its powers uh, and is, you know, threatening freedoms and, and threatening liberty. Um, so that I think is where, obviously where the, the far right and, uh, and populism come together in this particular moment. Do you feel from from what you saw over the three weeks at Ottawa that there were extremist elements uh, here in the occupation? Oh, there absolutely were. Uh, and it's no surprise if you look at the organizers who, by the way, had no relationship to the trucking industry, um, very closely connected to the energy sector and the oil industry. Um, but they themselves had long and deep roots uh, with the far-right movement, much of it uh, originating with the, the earlier Yellow Vest movement, you'll remember, what, three years ago, four years ago, uh, and the United We Roll rally, which we saw the similar sort of co-optation by the right of, you know, a set of, of popular and, and legitimate and authentic concerns around threats to uh, the uh, the energy sector in, in the West uh, in particular. So when you have, you know, leaders with that kind of, uh, of agenda uh, and ideology, then it's going to be appealing. So as it moved its way across the country, that uh, slow moving snowball, uh, it did pick up. Uh, you know, it picked up a lot of people with very authentic concerns about, you know, about mandates and about their own health, but it also picked up an awful lot of other actors and, and ideologues uh, from the far right. So that, you know, we see uh, obviously Diagalon uh, in there, we see um, Soldiers of Odin, Three Percenters, uh, Infidel. Um, so, you know, a number of groups uh, came to the movement, but also just individuals. I mean, the movement has become much more uh, atomized in recent years. So we saw a lot of individuals with uh, very views that are very sympathetic uh, to the far right and were expressing, um, you know, we saw, some, we saw some expressions of racism, obviously, but here what really came to the fore were the anti-statist uh, and anti-authority elements of the far right, unlike anything we've seen in, in recent years. You know, we talk about extremism and far right is something we've, you know, spoken about quite a bit here. But, you know, what about far left extremism? What, what, what's the difference between the two? Well, I think when we look at far uh, at the far left, and um, you know, there I think we've we've done a couple of webinars ourselves looking at exactly this question. When we're talking about the the far left, and especially the Antifa uh, that the the far right and likes to pillory uh, and that uh, many media like to to focus on, um, think about what it stands for. That is the anti-fascist. They exist only to challenge racist, fascist organizations. Uh, whereas the far left, as we know it today, I mean, if we look at the MOU associated with the, the convoy, for example, it, it stated explicitly that one of their goals was to overturn a democratically elected uh, government. Um, so they, the far right um, is anti-democratic uh, and anti-statist uh, as it is today. Uh, it is, uh, it's racist, 
Uh, it's often homophobic. It's often anti-feminist and, and misogynistic. Um, so it is, uh, you know, it, it is obviously on the other extreme. It's, it opposes uh, social justice initiatives and it's reactionary uh, and conservative as opposed to the, the far left and Antifa in particular, um, which are, you know, which I think proudly would claim the label social justice warriors that's used as an insult uh, often by the far right and conservatives. You know, you, you mentioned your 2015 report on extreme extremism, and, and it notes one of the key issues is weak police enforcement. Now, after what we saw for three weeks in Ottawa, how much do you think that was in play during the Ottawa occupation? Because people in this town were so upset to see the police hobnobbing with uh, the demonstrators, if they call themselves that, and nothing was happening for the residents. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of dissatisfaction with the way that that was managed. And it, it was interesting to me because early on, you know, before the before the convoy even left uh, BC, slowly was saying, you know, we know they're coming. We anticipate violence. We have to be prepared for that. So they sounded prepared, uh, but certainly didn't behave as if they were prepared. So didn't cordon off the downtown so that they couldn't make it, uh, you know, uh, to the parliament buildings, uh, for example. You, you would have thought we'd learn something from January 6, uh, for example. Now, that said, Toronto did learn something because they did cordon off the downtown on the weekends when protests uh, were planned. But, uh, you know, aside from the lack of preparedness and the lack of resources, you know, I think we also do see some sympathy on the part of law enforcement for these sorts of movements. There's a lot of parallels there in terms of, uh, you know, their, their position on some of the same issues, including mandates. You know, we have, um, you know, Mounties for Freedom, uh, you know, the Facebook page, for example. And so we, there is resistance among some, some elements of law enforcement to that. And we saw that, right? The, the one officer who was uh, found, um, heard on video, seen on video uh, saying, you know, I support you 100%. Uh, the other one, you know, the officer, the OPP officer who was using his cruiser for a, a, a photo uh, booth, uh, if you will. So, you know, there was uh, there was that, that sympathy there. Uh, and I think that we're hearing that you know that disparity and that those those complaints about disparity especially from indigenous and, and black communities where uh you know they've had smaller and, and you know short-lived uh demonstrations that have been met with far more force than what we saw here so i think it was it was quite clear so in terms of extremism how does canada confront that well, I often say that, you know, it's not just a regulatory issue, it's not just a law enforcement issue, but in fact, uh, you know, it is a multi-sectoral approach that's needed here, education, public health, um, you know, the media have a role uh, to play here as well. So not just government, but civil society and, and um, you know, the, the private sector as well. Obviously, social media companies have a lot to answer for uh, here. But I think one of the things that has enabled uh, and allowed recruitment to the movement has been, I think, a lack of, uh, of digital literacy, critical digital literacy, and our capacity to sift out the misinformation, disinformation uh, from, uh, you know, from facts, uh, if you will. And of course, that's the point of debate, isn't it? Which, uh, mm -hmm. which facts are, are real facts? Um, but I think that, you know, we do need more, not just for youth, but for adults as well. I mean, adults have been very much um, swept up in uh, 
uh, in the conspiracy theories and disinformation as well. So how do we how do we help people to build the resiliency, the capacity uh, to resist, to challenge, to be much more reflective about the sorts of things that are crossing uh, crossing their screens? And I think that that's one area we we certainly need to uh, to do a lot of work. But we obviously also need much more leadership at the political level. Um, you know, I think that there was there was no party that spoke forcefully uh, enough, I think, uh, or has even uh, spoken forcefully over the last six or eight years as, as we've seen this dramatic growth. Uh, and in fact, quite the opposite, where we've seen political parties pander uh, to uh, to the movement, whether it's the, the convoys right now as, we, as we've seen them uh, or their predecessors over the past couple of years. Barbara, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Barbara Perry is professor in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at Ontario Tech University. What many people in Ottawa were shocked about was the absolute lack of enforcement by police and the organization of the convoy. Stephanie Carvin is Associate Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, and she joins us now. And Stephanie, it seemed police had no plan to deal with this, which as an Ottawa resident myself, I find quite incredulous considering, you know, the movement made no qualms saying it was coming to Ottawa. Police in Ottawa are on the front lines, in particular when we have dignitaries coming coming through. And I, I remember when George Bush came here uh, back in, uh, it had to be 10, 12 years ago, the uh, choppers were in the air. Everything was shut down for, for, uh, for that visit. But, you know, we knew for weeks, if not months, that this was coming here and nothing was done. Yeah, it, it is uh, mind boggling. I mean, I think, you know, we auto residents, you know, have memories of just some really ridiculous things like a lemonade stand being shut down with the full enforcement of the National Capital Commission, the uh, you know, I think was it last summer or two summers ago, there was a, a Shakespearean production in a backyard that was shut down because it was causing a disturbance. And yet we don't see anything in this particular case. Now, I think part of the reason for that is like, let's let's be generous uh, in some ways. So there's Ottawa is, of course, a city of different levels of responsibility, right? There you have mm -hmm. the municipal level, you then have the NCC, which is the National Capital Commission, which is, you know, recognizes that uh, both parts of Ottawa and Gatineau are part of kind of the, the federal importance of the federal landscape and nationally important. So, so they have a say in things. And then uh, the RCMP also has a role, right? Um, they like specifically for, you mentioned George W. Bush, when a, a dignitary like that comes to town or there's a special protected person, that responsibility is not of the Ottawa police, it's actually the RCMP. So I think that actually helps explain some of the confusion. Like, I'm not sure that people really understood where the you know, responsibility lied. And then because of that, because this was such an intractable situation, I think there was a lot of effort quite quickly to try and kick responsibility to a different level in, in something I'm calling jurisdictional hot potato. So I think this is what it kind of came down to is that the, you know, pretty much by, you know, day leading up to this we see ottawa police literally with welcome signs um and they had a picture with a truck saying hey welcome to ottawa it's your right to peacefully protest go for it um and then um after this there were uh, you know three days later we see, we see calls for federal help because this is now somehow a, a foreign funded and controlled um protest according to chief who the person who's police 
you know, chief of police at the time, Chief Slowly. So uh, they started then asking for federal responsibility and then, it, you know, but, and, and where's the province in this? I have no idea. Mm. So, I mean, I think this kind of problem of, of maybe it's a typical Ottawa thing. And I think I'm definitely now speaking outside my expertise, but you have a situation where, you, you know, no one really wants to take responsibility and the easiest thing to do in Ottawa is just kick it to a different level of government. Now, going back to the Bush thing for a second, you know, I was down there when they when they were rolling in. Now, the RCMP could be in charge, but Ottawa police officers were everywhere, you know, in support of that. Um, but this, this trucker convoy, how, how do you think the extremists were able to, to join in? Or do you think maybe they started it and the convoy against mandates decided to jump on board? So what this really was is a movement that was at its heart organized by extremists, right? This is a, a group of people who have tried to organize multiple convoys over time. They did so in 2019, much less successful at that time. And they tried to, um, you know, frame their grievances around oil and gas, right? That was supposed to be oil and gas. In reality, it was kind of really about a conspiracy theory that the United Nations is somehow trying to engage in white genocide by replace, you know, by, by bringing over uh, Muslim refugees to Canada, right? Um, it, it, but, you know, you can't really sell a mass movement on that kind of idea. You can sell them on maybe oil and gas, but where it really worked is when they framed their grievances, not around oil and gas or a conspiracy theory, but around pandemic exhaustion, right? So at its heart, there, there were extremists. I mean, if you look at the views of, of Tara Lick, who's, who's now uh, been denied bail and is in prison, I mean, she was the head of, of, you know, she was really with those convoys in 2019 and she heads up the Maverick Party, which wants to have a Western separation. You have BJ Dykter, who's um, made a very, uh, Islamophobic remarks and has accused Canadian politics of basically being infiltrated by, um, you know, uh, like basically Muslim extremists. You have Pat King, who, well, as of this recording, I don't think really we know what his status mm. is. Yeah. I'll also say, but yeah, we have uh, him, and he's you know talked about solving problems with bullets. He's talked about white genocide. So these are the kind of views of the people who literally organize this. So you have an extremist-led event, which unsurprisingly turns to extremist tactics. And then on top of that, what ends up happening is you have different extremist groups that then look for these opportunities in order to uh, create chaos. I, the way I've been explaining it is they're not as much interested in mandates as they are in mayhem, right? They want to take advantage of any opportunity to A, uh, further recruit, right? So by going through the masses and trying to bring people in. Secondly, trying to create chaos, uh, the perception that, you know, government's faltering, collapsing, these kinds of things. And quite frankly, a lot of them just enjoy torturing people. You know, if we can like take a city hostage and laugh at the people who are suffering as a result, then that's something that appeals. So you then have various groups, uh, Canada First, a Diagalon. Um, these were groups that uh, jumped in. I think Diagalon's probably uh, more prominent at this time, possibly because of the involvement of uh, someone who was considered to be their head of security, Chris Lysak out in Calgary and who's arrested now for um, apparently plotting or allegedly uh, plotting to kill RCMP officers. So I think that this is the, the, the deal. The, you have um, you know, people in an, extreme, you know, an extremist movement which is able to tap into a much wider set of grievances, right? That everyone in society can recognize. I mean, I'm tired of this pandemic. I'm tired of lockdowns, all these, like, it's not inaccessible. But then on top of that, when you have this kind of chaotic situation that attracts further people who are going to want to take advantage of this for their own benefit. 
What do extremists get out of uh, the chaos, the mayhem, destabilizing society? Um, so there are groups. So Diagon in particular is uh, usually referred to as a neo-fascist accelerationist network. That's the language of the uh, the uh, the Canadian anti-hate network. That's how they describe them. So neo-fascists and the idea that, okay, these are people who don't believe in democracy. They believe Canada's corrupt. It's ultimately going to fail, um, that people are not being well served by a particular elite, right? And that they are kind of at the vanguard of wanting to push forward a, a you know, the inevitable collapse of society, right? They, they, they don't think you know, the, the point about accelerationists is there's all different kinds of accelerationists. But in this particular case, you have um, individuals who believe that, you know, society is corrupt. Um, it's ultimately going to fail. And they, we, they should work to push that failure faster because out of that fa failure will come, you know, in, in their view, a, a white ethno state that they can live in. That's literally where the name Diagalon comes from, right? It comes from this idea that they're going to be able to carve out through a diagonal line, a chunk of North America where they can live uh, as they will. But that'll only happen if there is some kind of, of uh, chaotic collapse through which this, you know, this ridiculous idea of a state can be born. How much do these people need the acceptance of their beliefs? Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it really depends. I mean, we have here, and I've been thinking about this question a lot. Uh, it's, it's interesting that you asked this because I'm thinking, you know, there's really just a fraction of people who are willing to sit in their cars or trucks for three weeks and give up everything in order to, to force change, to, to block a bridge, all these different kinds of things. It's only a fraction, but that fraction causes a lot of chaos. You know, um, hundreds of millions of dollars of chaos has been uh, hit against this country as it tries to get out of this pandemic. And you really have to think, well, geez, maybe, you know, how much of our security is really based on the idea that like the vast, vast, vast majority of people believe in the system, right? So does it actually take a lot for things, to, you know, and, and not even necessarily violent tactics in the way that we would traditionally conceive of violent tactics. Like we, we, we normally, when you think of violent tactics and extremist movements, you think of, 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 you know, unfortunately of shootings, explosions and things like this. But in this case, yeah, I mean, the movement was portraying itself as nonviolent. Now that wasn't true because, you know, if you, you torture people for three weeks straight by not letting them sleep because of honking, if you're harassing them, if you're uh, targeting homeless shelters, or um, if you're targeting the kinds of things that people uh, need to live their everyday lives. I don't, or, or, you know, a good example, there were bomb threats against hospitals. There were uh, floods to the 911 system. This is not the hallmarks of a nonviolent movement. And it was enough to cause a lot of chaos. So I think there's a lot of questions being asked right now within uh, the various national security agencies themselves thinking, okay, which well, we need to rethink our idea of what extremism is, of what political violence is. Um, but in doing so, does that then just open Pandora's box to other, you know, criminalizing other kinds of, of, of protests, which can often be disruptive as well? So it's, I mean, it's a lot of good questions here. Um, and I'm not sure I have great answers. How much does social media amplify their movement and their message? Huge. I mean, I don't think it should be uh, underplayed at all. It's really, I mean, the social media does a number of things. It, at the very least, it provides a sense of connectivity, 
right? Um, that these, you know, these people don't feel alone, um, you know, whereas at one time it'd be very hard for these individuals to connect with one another. Uh, this social media platforms absolutely allow them to form these kinds of, um, I, I think the term bubble is overused, but certainly a polarized group. Right, and a, and a group that isn't just polarized, but polarizing further, like more and more extreme over time. And I think that's a real issue. The other, the, the other thing it did was it provided uh, the Canadians in this movement a sense that they were at the vanguard of an international resistance to uh, pandemic measures, including vaccines. That, you know, I mean, Canada's boring. Um, for for these individuals to suddenly feel like they're at the, the forefront of something changing history. I mean, that has to be a, a really kind of powerful drug to, to, to have. And then the, the third thing was just kind of the material support, right? Um, there was a lot of ways that social media was involved in getting this movement going. Uh, the way that Telegram channels, Facebook, Twitter, were all promoting the, the, the different crowdfunding platforms. We wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation if it wasn't for social media, because the, mm. like they, there's no way they would have raised $10 million. And the fact that they raised $10 million in and of itself is not just you know materially significant, but it became a symbol in and of itself. And so, uh, you know, I think that this is, you know, it, it's really hard to downplay the impact of social media on all of this, particularly at a time when, you know, in Canada, we're thinking about how to deal with this idea of online harms. Stephanie, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for this is cathartic. I feel I feel better. Thank you. Stephanie Carvins, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Our unpublished I vote question asks, do you feel extremism is on the rise in Canada? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank our guest today, Barbara Perry, professor in the Faculty of Social Science and Humanities at Ontario Tech University, and Stephanie Carvin of Carleton University. And I want to thank you for watching The Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.